Whether it is breakfast time or lunch time or dinner time, we're in the north of England, dinner time, tea time, folks? Or tea time, I think, okay. probably. All yeah. right, all right. Whether it is breakfast time, lunch time or dinner time where you are, welcome to Making a Meal of It, the third helping of this podcast from the Birmingham Food Council. We're in Cheshire this time on a sort of warm, overcast-ish, actually rather beautiful October morning at Delamere, Delamere, did I say that right? Delamere, yeah, that's right. Delamere Dairy on Yew Tree Farm in Nutsford. There is so much to talk about when it comes to food security and how we get safe, nutritious food on our plates. But um, first, well, I suppose first, three firsts. First of all, who are we? Um, hello, everybody. I'm Nick Booth. My job is to keep the conversation going. Kate, say hello. Hello, Nick. <laughs> so, Kate, you run the Birmingham Food Council. Tell us again, just briefly, what the Food Council is. The Birmingham Food Council, it's a kick and it's completely independent of any other organisation. And we look at food and the economy, food safety assurance and integrity, and also, increasingly so, food security. Thank you. And Ed Salt, MD of Delamere Dairies, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so our second first is tell us a bit about Utree Farm and where we are. Uh, so Utree Farm, so uh, Delamere Dairy, you kindly sort of highlighted the fact that we're based in Nutsford, but uh, uh, lots of people in Nutsford don't actually know where we are because with a name like Delamere Dairy, uh, people expect us to be in Delamere Forest, which is near Chester. So we have a lot of people wandering around Delamere Forest wondering where the hell we are, and we have a lot of people wandering around Nutsford wondering, uh, can't find us either. So, um, But we are here on the farm where uh, we came here in 1992 after starting a commercial goat herd of three goats over in the forest. Uh, we came here in 1992 where we uh, expanded and in 2002 left because we grew out the site but we're still happily on the farm uh, overlooking the Cheshire Plain. And it is the bu- buildings are beautiful, it looks like a beautiful place to be. It is, it's a great place to be, it's a great place to work. Um, I always say to um, members of staff that uh, we're all just like goats at the end of the day. If you give a goat a nice place to, to live and to work they will give you less veterinary bills and more product Activity. and it's the same for people we're all just mammals at the end of the day you give people a lovely place to work uh, and they will reward you uh, hopefully so fantastic well let's carry on doing what these strange mammals do which is make a podcast so Kate since we last sat down together what has been on your mind what have you been ruminating on um well with all the problems we've got with truck drivers and getting food supplies to a population at last maybe people will take it seriously that our food supply system needs love and care and attention okay ed what's on your mind uh lots of things at the moment are on my mind from um energy that's obviously in the news to uh, to labor as in the and people um as in truck drivers people who will work in warehouses people who work in factories uh, the cost of wood for pallets uh, everything you name it uh, whether it's brexit and it, and uh, delay in health certificates or what's going to happen with the requirements of health certificates for uh, ingredients coming into the country everything there's so many facets it's uh, it's endless so it sounds like everything's in flux and there's just challenges coming at you from all directions I think there are certainly challenges. I mean, to be fair, you know, being a bus- being in business for t- 20 years and being in the food business for 20 years, you sort of get used to it and learn to roll with it. I think if you if you didn't or couldn't, then you would have sort of been a six foot under a long time ago. So, so uh, you know, it is just the day job. We manage that grey space between farm and uh, getting it into people's mouths, and we do that to the best of our ability. So I'm going to come on to the big subject of food security in a moment, but first three, I suppose, is... Is tell us about Delamere Dairy and your business. Delamere was, uh, as I mentioned before, started over in Delamere Forest in 1985, uh, solely with a desire to farm. Um, uh, Roger and Liz Sutton, who who founded the business, wanted desperately to get into farming. But in the 1980s, there were quotas which sort of stopped people. Well, it didn't stop people, but if you didn't have any money, uh, you couldn't go and buy the quotas or get into farming. But desperately wanting to farm, they decided that they would entertain uh, milking goats uh, and really started the commercial goat farming industry in the UK uh, uh, but they soon realised that nobody wanted to pack this milk for them so they had to not only milk the goats but they had to pack the milk and market it as well. 
Uh, and cutting a long story short, the you know we 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 grew out of that farm. We moved to here. We grew out of this farm, uh, and and where we are today is we are we are not just a goat business, though a lot of people know us for for goat farming. We have goat farms uh, from Skipton all the way down to Somerset, Dorset area. We uh, have uh, no longer have a production site here ourselves, but we uh, have production sites all over the UK and Europe. We have 15 production sites that uh, which we are invested in in some of those, we're invested in farming as well. So so we're still a vertically integrated business as such, um, and and we supply not only goats products, but we supply uh, a whole range of. Uh, long life cow's milk products we're well known for flavoured milks in the UK um, but also speciality non-dairy alternatives the likes of oat and rice and almond and coconut and whatever it might be is a is a growing part of our business um, we have a pet food business uh, out of a need of necessity of getting price increases in the early noughties as they call them uh, we we launched a, a, a product called we thought if they can do whiskers can do cat milk we'll do dog milk so we launched dog milk and and, and that's uh, uh, represents about 10 percent of our, our business uh, and then we've also invested in a sort of a, an aim to try and give a more circular economy we've invested into uh, uh, meat businesses so we have a, a goat meat business called cabrito uh, and also a tannery as well so we we're full utilization of of everything on the farm uh, so that uh, everything has a purpose so so really multifaceted uh, and and research Recently, just incorporated our a corporate foundation uh, called uh, the Delamere Dairy Foundation. So we continually, continually try to push the boundaries and do do different things. Not only in the UK because we supply all retail in the UK, uh, but also to 20 other countries around the world. Okay, I've got so many questions. I mean, maybe we'll ask some of them in a bit. But uh, for question one, which is just raw curiosity, when you say dog milk you mean milk for dogs yes not, we're, not we're milk not, of I, dogs yeah, i had that a vision years ago i can't remember which, which was it was bagpuss or something there were there were mice and it was like we will we will and they were uh, they were um with the chocolate biscuits they, and they were milking or something i can't remember i was very young but the uh, but no we don't milk cats and dogs uh, that would be wrong uh, we have a whole herd of labradors sort of sitting down the road but the uh, no it, it is uh, it is uh, goat's milk originally for uh, cats and dogs or dogs and cats uh, and and we've then rolled into different products we do. Uh, we do a bedtime milk for dogs as well. And we've just launched a oat-based vegan drink for dogs as well. So, you know, it is a, it's amazing what people spend on their pets. Uh, and, you know, the, we look at the pandemic and the boom of the puppy purchasing. And uh, it is, you know, people want to spoil their animals. So. And you, you sort of just casually mentioned that you sell to 20 different countries. So you're marketing to China. I mean, your products go a long way. Yeah, so furthest afield is Australia. Uh, we do a supply sort of cheese and, uh, well, butter mainly, actually, and a bit of cheese into Australia. Uh, main markets we sort of look into um, are um, Middle East, uh, quite a good presence in the Middle East, America, uh, Southeast Asia, and there's a variety of countries in Southeast Asia. We used to have an office in Shanghai, but for uh, various reasons, and I, I've decided to pull out of that uh, that that office uh, and uh, run it from from here um, but yes the you know Europe was a, uh, a we had a lot of sales in Europe which we've had to knock on the head uh, in recent times due to the the administration burdens of, of brexit uh, but we still trade with Europe in different ways uh, and we're still reliant upon you know ingredients packaging production etc depending on on what product in in which country we're wanting to supply so I'm wondering what you're curious about at this point Kate There's just the sheer range of things that you do and the utilization you have the vertical integration in effect means tremendous efficiencies yeah i mean we were very vertically integrated you know we as we sit here today uh, the animals were, were housed uh, in the sheds at the back they walked across the yard they were milked they were the milk was pumped through the wall and it went into a carton and out through the truck down the down the lane past the school which was a slight problem as we grew uh, but the uh, and then we outsourced we had to we had to buy a you know a brownfield site and and develop it and we didn't have the money at the time simple, simple as that so we had a need of necessity we outsourced our production but actually that became a really nice business model because when you were just a niche a, a dairy brand you didn't want to invest a million pounds into a piece of kit that you were only utilizing 20% of it 
Hmm. Um, so, so to be able to go to co-manufacturers and say, look, we've, we've got a spare 10% capacity. We can be the icing on the top or the cherry on the top of your production and fill your, uh, with a non-competing product. Um, that was very you know, interesting for people at the time. As we've grown, we've realized that actually we, we want to be more vertically integrated. So we have looked to invest back into farming. Um, we've looked to invest with our partners. Most of the companies we work with, we've worked with for sort of 15, 20 years, and our, our partners, we're not, I don't never see us as a customer, we see, see ourselves as a, we're, we're, we're battling this together to try and win business, to try and grow our businesses together. I never want anybody to produce anything for us without making good money out of it. I, I want people to want to work with Delamere Dairy. Uh, I want them to feel a, a pride, and I want, want that last production slot on a Friday afternoon to be ours because because they want to do it because they make good money out of it. So, so it is, um, I can't even remember your question now, okay? But, the, <laughs> but, the, but, the, but it is, it, we, oh, the efficiency. So yeah. but with the vertical integration, I mean, when we stopped processing uh, and when we um, ourselves here, we didn't become any more profitable or any less profitable. We just passed the, the, the element of our gross margin that was d- related to technical or, or, mm. or um, production or et cetera to somebody else. And yeah, okay, we m- maybe lost an element of margin, but then we share that, you know, and that's, uh, that's as I said, it's given. And I think I, I didn't really expect to spend so long on this, but it's so intriguing. So. Yeah, that element of integration, that element of trying to find the most useful thing to do with everything that comes about, you know, a tannery, is that simply profit driven or is there something else behind that? Uh, absolutely not profit driven uh, in any way. My, uh, as it says on our wall here, uh, to make our uh, healthy, nutritious speciality dairy products while supporting uh, uh, eth- sustainable ethical, ethical farming practices. Um, we, cr- we started the goat industry in 1985. I am merely a custodian of this business. It's my job to steward it for the next generation. So, um, so it is my job, and it, the definition of, of, of custodian or stewardship is or one of them, is to, to pass it on in a, in a better form than when you received it. Um, it is my responsibility, and I can talk about our values and responsibility being sitting at the heart of our business in a bit but it is my responsibility to make sure that the industry is is in as good a shape if not a better shape than 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 when I when I came to it everything I do here is to make sure that that the farms are protected we're not a big part of the British agriculture uh, and therefore a little bit of pressure and actually it starts to crack and fall apart We've never lowered our milk price to the farms. Uh, we only ever put the price up. Uh, I want the farms to make money, as I said before. Uh, you know, sustainability is a buzzword, but it, it's 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 huge when you look at sustainability. And it's and but it's profit mean farms making profitable, being profitable, so that they can reinvest in their in their business as well. We, as a country. Uh, predominantly didn't eat goat meat uh, and a chap called James Wetlaw who uh, who runs uh, Cabrito goat meat um, sort of has been on a on a passionate sort of uh, uh, um, drive to, to, to raise the profile of goat meat because quite frankly on farms the same with the calves on farms is that the animals were being slaughtered at birth because there wasn't a use for them that that is fundamentally wrong our industry, our country today, we, we can't hide behind things. We have to be open and transparent, and we want to be open and transparent. It's not that we've hid behind it before. We were very open with what happened on farms, but we had to create a goat meat market in the UK. Uh, goat meat has been eaten for thousands and thousands of years. You know, it, it's, uh, I can't remember the name of the chap, but the frozen guy found in the Alps from the middle, uh, you know, he, he, he was found with goat leather boots on and half a kilo of goat meat in his stomach. So, so you know, it is, but... It's not been part of the UK diet, which is understandable because goats uh, don't have oil in their coats. They're a Middle Eastern animal. They're a Mediterranean animal. They, they don't like northern, windy, rainy, wet places in, in general. So, so, and therefore, when you look at the royal cookbooks, for example, there's only ever been two goat recipes in them or something like that. So, so but, you know, we are a multicultural society. Yeah. And there are lots of people who will holiday in different places or have come to the UK from different countries or her heritage knows of the, wanting to eat goat meat or mutton, as it's called in India. And therefore, there is a demand out there. So, so we invested into Cabrito because we felt it was the right thing. We felt that it would add value to the farms. It would add, mean that they are utilizing uh, driving efficiencies in their own farms. It means that these animals are being born with a purpose. And then 
on from that, then we were introduced to a guy called uh, Jack Millington, uh, who uh, had built the first tannery in the UK for 50 years. Uh, and, uh, and we thought, you know, this is something we should support. So we have, uh, you know, goat leather being produced. And from there we have handbags and shoes and trainers and, and wallets. And, and you start to see that full, full cycle with every part of the, of the farming element of our business uh, all working together in a sort of cyclical economy. I think I want to come back to this, but let, let's get on to the meat of this conversation. Um, sorry about that. Huh. Uh, but actually, first of all, let me remind people, if you want to keep track of the Birmingham Food Council, we're Birmingham Food Council on Twitter or B-H-A-M Food Council on Twitter. We are also BirminghamFoodCouncil.org. That's the website where there's loads of material that Kate has written about food security and what happens to the food coming to your plate and do you just want to mention your website if people are curious yeah sure um delameardairy.co.uk um we have um various other websites where people can look for our planted products or our top life uh, products as well but search online uh, you can, and, uh, and and in, you can learn a lot of the benefits of the products as well by just visiting the website Lovely. So let's get down to the questions we, t- we are asking everybody at the moment. Uh, and interestingly, the way your business is structured, this may be different for you, but the risks built into the food as it's coming to you rather than the food as it leaves you, mm-hmm. give, give us an idea of what risks you're having to address, how you address them, what worries you, uh, how you deal with it. So food coming into us, which is everything from the raw milk mainly uh, to all the uh, associated in- ingredients that, uh, or packaging or whatever, it, or, or pallets or whatever it might be, but all the, everything that's coming into the business uh, is, is, is obviously becoming a, a higher uh, focus, um, um, not only from the, the likes of Horsegate, which we sort of mentioned before our, uh, the, the, the record button was uh, mentioned, but if I look back 20 years ago, uh, technical wasn't a huge part of our business, uh, whereas the technical side of our business is as big as our, almost as big as our sales side of our business now. So it's, inc- it's incredibly important. You know, dealing with dairy products, we're a high-risk area. Product goes off when you stick it on the shelf, you know. So, so it, it is, it is uh, making sure that farm quality uh, is, is of the highest importance and making sure that the raw materials that are coming into us are of the highest quality. We do a lot of long-life products. Actually, just because it's long-life doesn't mean the quality of the raw material coming in at the start can be inferior in any way. If anything, it's got to be better. Every, every milk collection, every tanker, every production uh, at every production site uh, you know we have a huge amount of, uh, of technical requirements and quality assurances to make sure that when it goes onto the supermarket shelves when it leaves our factory gate as such is that actually there isn't any worry um, I, I'm, I have no desire to worry about anything uh, you know I tell, I tell everyone here don't worry that's my job but in, in reality what I've got to make sure is that the foundations in our business are secure and robust enough and the processes are secure and robust enough so that actually when it leaves our shelf, when it's had its positive release, that it goes onto a supermarket shelf or it gets on a plane or goes into a truck and drives to wherever it might might be across the world, that I haven't got a product recall on my hand and then I do lose sleep. So, so uh, I don't lose sleep simply because I know that the processes that we have in place uh, are... Th- you know, pretty much a bulletproof. Not saying things don't go wrong; things do from time to time over the last twenty years. But um, but they're normally things that are out of our control rather than within our control. So, in the last couple of years, are there things that what has tripped you up, or what has what what are the things that have surprised you that you've had to deal with in a particular way? Um, I wouldn't say we've been tripped up in any way. I think the the horse gate scenario was a game changer, certainly in retail. Um, uh, and actually, there was a significant amount of focus uh, into the traceability of, of ingredients and raw materials. Uh, our business model pushes us anyway, our responsibility to, to make sure that we're sourcing responsibly uh, anyway. Uh, and I think consumer demand, rightly so, is pushing for the clean decks, fair trade, whatever it might be, rainforest assurance, or whatever it whatever it might be, um, I think and I think that's great. My personally, I forget business. I think it's I think it's great. Uh, I think there's a huge shift uh, on in, in 
whether it's just UK, uh, but I mean, it's a tidal wave that will, will wrap itself around the, around the planet. And I think there are huge challenges ahead and as uh, cost inflations uh, and um, people's purses will get uh, tighter and tighter simply because people, uh, but then maybe that will start to eventually bring the prices down. There's an econo- economic an- angle as, as well. But at the moment, you know, everything that we are doing and looking at is cost is costing more money. The the, the re- we do a fair amount of retail-owned label, about 15 to 20% of our business is retail-owned label. And that has lots of benefits uh, to us, as well as it brings some volume and hopefully some profitability. But they are um, right, you know, right at the front of the world uh, uh, technical uh, scrutiny. Uh, and you know, when we're you know, much far, far further ahead than the likes of Europe, even though we've only just, just left Europe. You know, if we go to a, a production site in Europe and say we're going to bring Tesco to see you, you know, the, the, the demands and the requirements are significantly higher than a, than a, than a European uh, retail partner. And I think that's good for us because they're nice shiny apples and we can, we can gl- you know, the glow on them means that we are, we're pushed, pushed hard. Uh, and uh, to make sure that we've got that proper that integrity and, and that actually we can support everything that we do. Okay, just a tiny bit of concept, context for anybody listening. So the horse gate was the uh, UK scandal that uh, horse meat was found where it shouldn't be in our pies and all sorts of parts of our food system, which caused a real national scandal and a real panic around food. Um, five, four, five, six years ago, Kate? Um the Elliott Review was published in 2014. Yeah, which so. the, which Birmingham Food Council had a hand in because we lent them Birmingham. We lent them Birmingham. <laughs> so that they could think about food security at a city level. Um, so whilst we stay on this subject of risk into your business, um, I'm reminded of, uh, of a certain Graham Rose of Northfield and Birmingham who told me how on earth did you manage to make a podcast with Kate saying so little? So Kate, I think anything, on, anything you're interested in at this point in the conversation? I th- uh, there's two things, I think. One, one is many people have an idea of what goes on in farms, and it can be inaccurate or mm-hmm. accurate in varying degrees, and they certainly know what a supermarket looks like. What people have little grasp of is the amount of effort that goes from the farm gate into the supermarket, and actually that is where your work lies. And it is immensely technical, as you say, it's immensely high quality and quality assurance, as you say. And one of the concerns I have is generally about the food system. And you're absolutely right that supermarkets do a fine job of quality assurance. <coughs> but about half our food that we eat, including the breakfast that we ate this morning, Nick, and the dinner we had last night, is not via a supermarket, it's via a restaurant. And that that's that's a concern because the same, the same quality assurance isn't there necessarily, is it? But is, that's not really your concern. Is that correct? No, I th- think the um, so we're more of a retail business. Yes. So uh, therefore, but, lots of quality and lots yeah, of assurance. So, but, and and therefore, um, and we do supply into, uh, and we're wanting to supply more into uh, food manufacturing and yes. food service, and we're we're making great inroads in the likes of hospitality but they're still smaller parts of our business you know we're 85 percent retail so so you know the the wholesale side is is being eaten up or many you know uh, bid food no not bid food a booker have been bought by tesco so that's on a wholesale side so so you know the the larger retailers are 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 putting tentacles into these uh, other other markets um the you know, we do eat obviously, and through the last couple of years, last year, uh, eighteen months, we've not eaten out so much. So we've been very much reliant upon on retail. Uh, but we do all enjoy going out to have something to eat. Uh, and you know, you're right, right to sort of highlight the fact that food comes from all over the place, uh, and that also comes in from other parts of the world. And therefore, we have to question the food security from other parts of the world as well, as well as uh, into into hospitality. Um, the um, the country that we have and we love and we enjoy to live in um, we and the foods that we all enjoy on a day-to-day basis and we have grown to habitually to accept that we can walk into a supermarket and buy what we want. Um, it's interesting you said before that people uh, know a bit about farming but they only know a bit about farming uh, and uh, and it's been great to watch Jeremy Clarkson uh, and and actually you know talking to farms uh, what a great job because he's he's he's, he's 
that boundary, that sort of grey yes, area yeah. that people Indeed. don't understand, I think he's a fantastic, well done, you know, hats off to him, you know, whether people like him or love him or whatever, he, he's, he's, done, he's done a great job. And that's made people really think about farming and about the weather and about, uh, and about you know, the crops and where, and where, thing, where things come from. Uh, but if... Equally, if we want to go buy raspberries on Christmas Day, or 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 buy, you know, I, I bit into a wonderful apple that I picked out uh, from down, downstairs, uh, presuming it was from the tree outside, uh, and it had a New Zealand sticker on it. You know, we're we're in bang in the middle of October, and I'm thinking I should be eating the apple that's on the tree in the garden outside work here, or at least from from an orchard in this country, but. But we, as a country, we've got habitually very used to eating uh, anything we want at any time, and and that is we're on that cusp of things that are about, you know maybe about to change on some of these things, uh, which is sort of interesting times ahead. But but uh, but also massive opportunities as well. Okay, uh, so I want to go back and then I go forward because we'll talk okay. about the maximum. Max, you you said something which was that twenty years ago technical wasn't really part of your job. Sales was what 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 has changed? So um, so twenty years ago technical was part of the business, um, uh, but the business the, the way that was then it was that I uh, we only had five people here I think so so you know I wore the sales hat the technical hat you know and I didn't have you know hands up I didn't go to university to do anything I just didn't go to university I'm you know the only the only A plus I ever got was when I found out what my blood group was so 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 that you know I am I am not qualified to make these statements maybe but but by the school of hard knocks you know um, you know I. I took the technical mantle and I went to retailers and and I, we developed products and and it was a it was a sales led environment you know uh, 30 years ago when we first started producing goat's milk we would pack the milk and drive it in a cool box on the back seat of a car to Asda stores or associated co-ops as they were then in and around Leeds and Bradford. So, you know, you can't do that. You know, starting a food business today compared to starting a food business 20 years ago I wouldn't start a food business today, actually. You know, it is, it is incredibly hard and, and the risk and the pitfalls are huge and you can be tripped up in a moment. Uh, and uh, and unless you've got the support and the guidance of of the EHOs or or, or, or mentors or whoever it might be, then uh, and somebody who's actually, you know, got those bumps and bruises, then it's, in, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. So the common sense choices you were making when you started the business to make sure that people wanted your product and wanted to keep selling it have just become so ingrained in how it works now that you, they're the starting point. They're not the things you have to work we are, we're technically We're more technically driven sales these days. Whereas I would be, you know, uh, wet around the ears and going to see a Tesco buyer and, and, and you know, try and charm them and be nice to them and blow, blow smoke up wherever you blow smoke. The, you know, the, the, re- the reality is, is now... Yeah, okay, we need that. We need the sales side. We need the, the, the account management. But from that, it is actually that they are, want, they are looking at integrity. They are looking for businesses that they know that are risk-free. So as, a, as Delamere Dairy, you know, they say, well, they, they've been around a few years. They're, you know, they're 35 years into this game. And here's their technical department. So, you know, let's, let's develop it through NPD, through technical, through, uh, through good common uh, knowledge and grounding and, and foundations that the, that the business is built on. I, I said, I always use an analogy is that when you're building a, a skyscraper, whatever skyscraper you want that to be, it could be a million pound to 20 million pound or, or a one story, 20 stories uh, a skyscraper, same as building a business, is that you spend as much time in the foundations in the ground as you do building it. If you fail in one part of those foundations, it doesn't matter which bit it is, but say the technical part of those foundations, if that fails, there's a high chance it'll pull the rest of the business down with it. So you've got to make sure that the foundations of your business are robust to support the level or the size of business you, you want to have above it and and what we've managed to do over the over the years here is to create really solid foundations that we can then build whatever we want on top and with the knowledge that we're not going to trip up fall over or the whole thing collapse around us and as you say if somebody wanted to start a food business they've got to invest a huge amount before they even get out of the ground haven't they it it is and and i'm very very lucky here is that i i uh, did a management buyout in 2008. In fact, uh, it was stood in offices in Colmore Row in Birmingham, Birmingham yeah. on the 17th of October 2008. The financial world was collapsing around us, and I 
decided it was a good idea to do a management buyout. But the but Roger and Liz, who who had uh, risked everything for the, the from two, eight, 1985 to 2008, you know, they were in the trenches. They were doing the hard work. They were doing the foundations. And all I've I've done is is, is secured those foundations and built on top of them. So it's, it is a real challenge food businesses now, and you, and we see them cropping up all the time because of our investments and because of our production partners. We see lots of new brands coming into the market, but they are marketing companies. Um, they are who develop brands who who get it packed at a production site based on a contract, based on all the responsibility falling onto the production site. And actually, that's not us as a business. We're not a, a broker or a trader. Or a, you know, we are a branded business. But but what we have to do is we have to take ownership of of, the, of that grey area in the middle that we t- mentioned before, uh, and really make sure that when when I see a product on the shelf, which I'm genuinely still proud as punch to see someone picking one of our products up off the shelf. Uh, you know, you, you know that they're going to taste that product and they know that it's going to be safe and it's going to taste great. And that actually that responsibility is that we have responsibility source those products uh, and, and that we can be proud of it. Have you always been in the food business? Have you, did you do something else? Uh, no, uh, I had a paper round. It was cold at times, I remember. <laughs> but the, uh, no, I did 10 years, as I say, I didn't go to university, I, uh, but I did 10 years in the, uh, worked on a boatyard, uh, sank a couple of canal boats, I seem to remember, which was really unfortunate. Uh, uh, and then did 10 years in the oil industry, um, which... Uh, taught me a lot and I'm very grateful for the company that at the time I got frustrated with because I was young and wanted to take over the world with a fire in my belly and wanted to, to do this and I couldn't understand why they were doing this and I couldn't understand why they were doing that and and then uh, but they gave me a lot of responsibility at a very young age which was I'm very very grateful for uh, and and then I came to I came to Delaware so I've been here for 20 years so so from from oil to to milk uh, is you know there's they're liquid <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they are fairly core to the they are they are yeah. core and and that's very interesting point you make there about things that are core uh, is that you know and what we're seeing recently in, in on the supermarkets and the shelves and everything else and what we saw at the start of the pandemic which i find incredible really is that you know an army marches on its stomach you know we, we like to eat sometimes three times a day uh, sometimes more uh, and yet we our supply lines are 12 to 24 hours mm-hmm. you know yeah. supermarket shelves empty within two days you know mm-hmm. or three days so you know this this fragile part of our of society that we just take for granted in three days time if, if everything stops people don't eat mm. and this is a real you know this is this is fundamental that we every day day in day out we want to eat we need to eat to stay alive you know we need 2,000 calories a day we need 70 calories whatever 80 calories every hour just to sit still and stay alive you know so what we, we need more focus on food and the supply chains as well as making sure that it's safe and, and everything else, but we need more focus so that people can realise and understand and appreciate. You know, we say it's great that politicians stand up and say, "Oh, you know, the such and such and such and such have done a great job through the pandemic." But that's 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 not enough. No, I'm not saying that we want lots of praise, but I just want people to know that the huge amount of work that goes into well, something that they really just take for granted and throw away. You sound exactly like Kate Cooper. I mean, this is what you've been saying about feeding a city, isn't it? Yes, and inevitably supermarkets have, you know, only a few days' supply. Inevitably cities have only a few days' supply. I mean, where do you put it? Um, And that's why the supply chain and the responsibility for the supply, the ultimate responsibility for the supply chain has to rest with governments. They have to provide... They mustn't... God help us if a government starts dictating what should happen, then we get famines. Think of what's happened Mm. in the past in, shall we say, China or Russia... But the parameters of engagement seem to me that that's a government responsibility. I think it's everyone's responsibility. Absol- well, yeah. I don't. You, I think we put, and I'm not defending any government here or any, any any. I think we put too much on government. We have we've got into a, a habit in this country now, as if something goes wrong, it's government's fault. But food is very important, as I said, and therefore we has a responsibility to make sure. Otherwise, you know, if we had no food, then it would be government's responsibility to make sure that that's, we have food. That's the point. But but. But in reality, it is all our responsibility. You know, we have a responsibility to make sure that we, you know, we buy from the right places, we buy from the right people, we support the people, the the the, the, the farms that we we uh, are in our communities. We have we all have a responsibility, and we're awfully fickle. You know, yeah, I can't understand why the local pub is shut. We've well, never been in it. 
You know, I can't, I can't understand why the little, little oh, I love that corner shop and it's gone, but you've never been in it, you know, and, and therefore we, if we don't support these things, then they go. And same goes to our supply food chain and food system is that we have to take responsibility to, to look after our food supply. You know, we, we are, we, we, because of our wants and our desires and, and our, our breadth and need and how we're sold and marketed and celebrity chefs, of course we want to buy avocados and, and, and quinoa or whatever it is from all different parts of the world. But, and that's great and, and it's fantastic. But, but equally, we do have a responsibility to teach our children to make sure that the next generation knows more about and appreciates more about where our food comes from and the hard work that goes into it. I think... I agree with you entirely. The, the issue, I think, is that when, when people think about where your food comes from, they just think a rather nostalgic view of the 1950s mm. farm. And actually, as you've pointed out, our food comes from an immense amount of work between the farm gate and the, and the supermarket shelf. And that's one of the reasons why we have this podcast series, is yep. to talk to people like you, because you are in the thick of that. Mm. And it's... It, Without the primary production, we don't have a food system. So, you know, of course we've got to have it. Yep. But it's, it's the bit between that our lives in cities depend on it. Do, it depends do. On it, absolutely depends on its efficiency, its reliability, the technical, as you call it. Yeah. And, and people don't understand that. No, they don't. And, and Kate, though, where do you think government could, ought to step in? Because you don't think it ought to be producing the food or dictating what food <laughs> gets produced. You think that there's a place that the government should sit more confidently? Yes. I, there are economic and policy levers that only governments can act on. Individuals can't. Um, so, so fiscal policies, for example. I mean, we don't have, for example, we have a climate change levy, but we don't have a food resilience levy. Everybody says that the food system needs to change in, you know, in because of climate change, etc., and environmental degradation. We have to get people to change some of their food behaviours. The same was true of what energy we used, and we had a climate change levy to help make that happen. We could have a food resilience levy, which could restructure the food system so it fits in, Ed, with the kinds of things you've been talking about. So it becomes... Um, it becomes more, even more efficient. And the barriers to entry, which now are huge, mm. in effect, it's easier for people to enter, enter into it. There are the, the other things... For that example. Are, yeah, I mean, the government, uh, there are other areas, that are, other challenges that are coming forward that put additional pressure onto to the business and additional pressure onto consumers. You know, we have the plastic tax. I absolutely get it. I understand it and I know why, but it, it's, another, it's another area that we have to make sure that we adhere to, and make, which is, you know, making sure that we have, I think it's 20, uh, 25 or 30% recycled plastic in any plastic products. And we've got the start of the um, deposit scheme in Scotland uh, next year, where, uh, which will be rolled out to the UK in 20, the rest of the UK in 2020, I want to say four, but it could be five. Um, but, you know, whereas every single use uh, item will have a 20p levy on mm. top you know and ha that's that's going to be a huge sizable uh, habitual again using the habitual word change where people are, are going to be queuing up on their Saturday afternoons with wheelie bins full of, uh, of what they what this perfectly great system of curbside collection is going to be turned on its head because people are wanting to get 20p backs on every single item that they're purchasing or they don't purchase them um, uh, and therefore they're, they're forced to buy larger larger packs which they sort of carry to school uh, or, or, or whatever it might be you know so there's huge change it was a bit like the smoking ban you know where people aren't going to stand outside and smoke well no they don't they stop smoking uh so so therefore you know are people going to stand at, at, at outside a asda store on a saturday afternoon with another, another thousand people to claim their 20ps because they need it because they can't afford the food for next week if they don't do it uh then then they'll just stop buying those things so all these policies that are coming in are more and more pressure it means that businesses and companies have to think very very differently mm -hmm. but then consumers also have to think very differently and I guess that's the nature of very complex systems. You press here and unintended consequences pop up over there. It's it, just... It's, yeah, it's a balance. All of, well, I mean, I always talk about the balance of things. It's your only, a balance of scales are only ever level for a very brief moment in time. And then that pressure that you just mentioned pushes it, pushes it the other way. And that's, that's life. That's do, fine. Do you think as well as I do that um, it, there has to be... Society has to put more money into, and therefore presumably government does it, into food safety and integrity. And there's very few laboratories in this country at the moment, and it's 
fine when supermarkets have their own laboratories and do their own testing. But actually, um, should we in effect have more money spent on sampling and testing, um, inspection sampling and testing, which at the moment is very weak in this country? It's fine if you buy stuff from a supermarket, but it's not so fine if you eating out hospitality. I think there's more money needs to be spent or invested in the UK economy per se. Yes. Uh, I think the um, level playing field a few years ago, as in Europe, um, um, money, you look at the number of dairy companies or dairy plants in in Germany compared Mm. to the UK, you know, hundreds, significantly more. You know, if you look at the actual production sites in the UK today, if I wanted to have a product packed somewhere, there are very, very few that meet the standards that I want our products to and be and it's highly specialized the moment you yeah. start packaging protein it's highly specialized uh, hi- yeah and it's you know you, there are lots of smaller companies out there who are you know on a different level of uh, whether, you know whether it be salsa or whether they've uh, you know just an eho visit or, or or whatever it might be but we we need our production sites to be a br site you see double a grade mm-hmm. production site Absolutely. uh you know that means i sleep at night as i say so so the uh, but we and laboratories are the same, as you just say. You know, it is. Um, there are. We've, we've seen with the driver situation, with the labour situation. It's not just just drivers. Actually, mm. it's the, it's all the way across the whole of the country in every single part of the economy. Um, but if I'm lucky enough to find a tank tanker to come and pick my milk up off the farm, then I can get that milk to the production site. If I've got there's enough people who turn up at the production site, then that milk might get get packed. If uh, if there's enough people in the laboratory, and we've had this case, then we might be able to release that product, get it into our warehouse, and if it, if we can get it to the warehouse, and if we get it to the warehouse, and somebody actually picks the product onto a pallet in the warehouse, and it then has a driver to get it to the supermarket's warehouse, and if the supermarket warehouse actually lets us deliver their order, because they haven't got enough staff to actually accept the order in, and if they can then get it to the supermarket then the consumer can buy it if they've got enough fuel to drive there. So, so you know, the whole supply, the only one element of that, and we have had a situation where we couldn't get the product released yes. because there wasn't enough people in the laboratory to yes. actually put the testing on. We thought they would do it on one day, and they, sorry, we came in Monday, and it hasn't been done over the weekend because nobody turned up, and, you know, it gets delayed three days. We lose two days' worth of orders, and then... And then at the end of the day, I've still got animals with milk coming out of them on a daily basis. So w- what do we do then? You know, does it get thrown down the drain or do we make cheese out of it? Let's make cheese. But actually, there are no cheese makers. So what do we do there? So. And five years ago, would you be having that conversation that you've just had with us now? That Would you have stacked up that set of problems as a... As a no, five years ago, I'd have been having the conversation that do you realise that British milk... Uh, is so reliant upon the European economy uh, because because the, because the trees are grown, grown in Sweden that make the cartons and the Tetra Pak machine doesn't come from uh, from Stoke it comes from Stockholm and uh, you know etc 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 so the different set of pressures and the reality is is that the as we know the economies of of everything well we know but I don't think everybody knows that the economies of of, of just a simple glass of milk uh, is reliant on on everything from the tires on the on the on the trucks to whether somebody's alarm goes off uh, to get them out of bed in the morning i'm going to say let's go back to talking about risk but that's all we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes yeah. or so um but risks as 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 your products leave you and go to us and turn become come into our homes you've already talked a bit about i think but what of those what risks are on your mind in that respect um i'm confident that the products when they leave are uh, hands are in, uh, 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 you know, are in good condition and are of, of a quality. I'm confident that the supermarket supply chains are, 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 are robust. You know, I uh, have no reason to, to, to doubt them. But the challenge we have is to make sure that uh, our long life products of which we have a lot of long life dairy products uh you know therefore can be stored ambiently in a in a in a in a, in a cupboard or whatever that they're they're robust enough you know but but i am we you know got to make sure that actually the, the 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 shorter shelf life products are still delivering on what we promise uh, our, our customers expect uh, in homes that 
may, the product may have had a temperature abuse. It may have sat in the boot of the car for two hours. You know, their fridge says five degrees, but it's probably running at eight and a half or nine. You know, the kids leave the door open on the fridge and it's been beeping all day while they're out at work. You know, it, it's, we're reliant on making sure that there is enough... Um, um, I was say fat, but that's the wrong word. Enough. There's a, there's enough scope to to allow leeway, leeway to to allow those products to have a bit of abuse, which we do as part of all our uh, you know shelf life verifications, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We 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 do robustly check them and sort of leave them out of the fridge for and expose them to different temperatures, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, so that we we can uh, have have an element or, or pretty good confidence that those products will survive even past their their use by date. But but and because of that. I suppose I don't have a lot of worry on that in that because I, I know they can accept a bit of temperature abuse. But but that's you know at the end of the day we're reliant on other people taking care of those products as, as much as we did to get them to them. But I, I do think sometimes listeners to this will be surprised that you're calculating in the vagaries of the way we live our lives. Well, we have to. Uh, the you know that's just reality. We can't make something up. We, you know, we have to base we have to base our all our judgments on reality. Otherwise, we're just conning ourselves. So, you know, the the you know, and some shelf life verifications are that we have are are, are significantly uh, more arduous than others. You know, so uh, but that it's a good thing. You know, and and we then just adapt the shelf life of the product accordingly, depending on. I mean, we we might do it throughout the year if we've got a really 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 sort of hot spell you know we may say okay well we want to reduce the risk we're all about always about reducing risk you know my whole business is about reducing risk you know from day one it was about you know on a sales point of view it, it's it's making sure that actually we have more customers that we have more categories we have more markets we have uh, you know and therefore if something fell fell over there's less risk of the whole building as i said before falling down um so, but it you know we, we we continuously look and adapt and benchmark and uh and and taste and evaluate every single element from uh, all the way not just on on um on taste and actual product integrity, but also packaging integrity, uh, and also what 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 consumers want. What you know, we can sit around this table and debate and presume what consumers want, but it's to some extent it's just our decisions, our opinions. You know, we have to actually understand what consumers want and find find. And you know, we don't do a huge huge amount amount of market research, but it's a lot easier to sell something that somebody wants than something that they don't want. Mm-hmm. So so therefore, you know, if if the packaging is not right or not fit for purpose people again very fickle they will move elsewhere and they'll go to something that suits them so we've got to adapt and move and continually okay just coming to an end i I guess i want to go back to something we talked about at the beginning which is to do with sustainable ethical farming practices now you read your website and it's clear that the environment matters a great deal to your Mm -hmm. business but the environment matters a great deal to all businesses and we are all skeptical of greenwashing i'm not accusing you of that i just want you to talk a bit more about where that has come from, how long it has been in the business, what it is that is changing as a result of it. So that that strap line on the board behind me uh, was written 15 years ago. Um, uh, you know, it had probably at a time when we were waffling on about greenhouse gases. Whatever happened to the ozone, the, the hole in the ozone layer? I hope it's still there or not. No, I no, hope it's it, not. Uh, no, not it's gone. So, so the uh, CFC free, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, we all bought new fridges. It was, I'm sure, it was run by the fridge companies. But, but the, um, you know. We are not perfect, you know, none of us are. We, we, we've driven here today and, and I haven't got an electric car yet, but I am putting electric points in here at work in a few weeks. Um, it's about uh, understanding what we are doing and making positive improvements. Uh, uh, we have these three values, fun, healthy and responsible in our business, which were written by the business, by the staff 15 years ago again. And that responsibility sits at the heart. Uh, we, we need to act upon that as a responsibility and we need to make sure that we 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 continually move in a positive direction um the the whole carbon conversation is a huge conversation uh, that there's needs consumers need again more knowledge around it you know the greenwashing you talk about you know people talk about scope one and scope two and scope three and etc etc and you know about understanding what these scopes are and people say oh we're carbon neutral free or or whatever and and that's within a certain scope but they're not because at the end of the day we've got product moving all over the place and tankers picking up from farms but but we are all moving in in the right direction. Our our my want and desire is we've just developed the first 
carbon benchmarking scheme for uh, worldwide for goats for goat milk, milk production uh, and you know we we do that done that off our own back you know we, we've always stood on our own two feet we've not been supported by dairy uk's or ahdb's or anything like that you know we've we've developed that and we've we rolled it out across the farms you know we are wanting to make sure because consumers want to make sure that that, that when they pick up our product they can with confidence or at least know that they're working with a company that has has it sitting at its heart our company my desire is to make sure that uh, that as i say people can 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 have that confidence and and they can they can buy knowing that they are supporting a, a business that is doing the right thing. I can ask anybody in this business, I continually talk about without doing the right thing. We set up the um, Delamere Dairy Foundation last year. Um, why did I send up a, set up a corporate charity? Um, because it's something I've wanted to do for a long time, uh, but I, I believe in a balanced approach. I believe that, you know, that yes, okay, the, uh, the staff, I want staff to be paid well, I want farmers to earn good money, I want the production sites to make, make money, as I said before. But equally, I want uh, communities to benefit, I want our customers to benefit from, from, uh, from our products as well, and I want the planet to benefit, and, and therefore, there has to be a balanced, capitalist balanced approach where every single facet is benefiting rather than just the shareholders. And, and therefore, uh, the foundation was set up in order to allow communities to, to uh, uh, enter a grant panel po process so that actually we can put money back into, back into communities. But and equally the same as the planet. I want people to be able to buy our product knowing that we are making positive steps in the right direction. Um, but as I say, you know, we're not perfect. No one's perfect. We're still going to get on a plane. We're still going to drive a car, but we are moving in the right direction. I think that's the most important thing. Thank you. Kate, what have you got out of getting in a car, coming here and sitting down with Edsold? Um, I'm thinking of a comparison between my childhood and what you do. Because as you know, I was born and brought up near here. And the milk I drank was actually farmed on a farm that's now underneath Manchester Airport second, second runway. And I'm fairly sure I had TB as a child. I think I might have had brucellosis. Those two things are unheard of today. And the reason why is because people like you are making tremendous technical, to use your term, mm -hmm. assurance that those kind of damage to the planet and to people just aren't happening. I just think what your story is a remarkable story of what happened over the last sort of 50 or 60 years and we're living in a, many ways a much better world than we were, even though there's so many of us. But it is a, you're making a better world. That's what I've learned from you today. I think we're, I think we're all uh, making a better world. But back to something I said before, I think we all take it for granted. I take that point too. And uh, I think, you know, sometimes through life we have shake-up moments where we, we realise how lucky we are. Uh, and I tell my children, I say... Look here, girls, I say, you are the luckiest people to have ever been born. You know, the, you know, you live on this island in a temperate climate off the northwest coast of Europe with a health service and ample food on your plates with no earthquakes and no tsunamis. Uh, I said, with a loving family and a, and a heated home. I said, you, you are literally the luckiest people to have ever existed. Uh, and, you know, that's, and that's where we are, is that people do take it for granted day in, day out is that people uh, occasionally have these shake-ups when they go, oh, God, you know, I'm so lucky to be here, or whatever it might be. But, but actually, we need to appreciate it a bit more. You have been listening to Making a Meal of It, a podcast from the Birmingham Food Council. You can find out more at Beham Food Council on Twitter or birminghamfoodcouncil.org. You can find out more about Delamere Dairy if you go to delameredairy.co.uk. Kate Cooper, thank you so much. Ed Salt, thank you so much for inviting us here and talking to us. Thank you.